why the best fund manager isn't necessarily best for you, and how to make the most of a brand new ISA for the new tax year. I'm Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, and this is the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Show. So we've all heard of Neil Woodford, but what about the rest of them? How do you spot a good fund manager and how do you know if a manager is right for you? We've been having a look at some of the best and how to choose them. And I'm joined in the studio now by Darius McDermott, Managing Director at Chelsea Financial Services, who spends a lot of time looking at just that. So Darius, broadly speaking, what are the attributes that you look for in a good fund manager? Yeah, I mean, The one thing you can't get away from is experience. Uh, managers who have managed money in both up and down markets is um, crucial because if you think back to 2008 when the financial crisis, it was managers who maybe didn't panic, adhered to their style, their process, the sort of stocks that they look for. You know, they are the ones that came out the best the following the following years, and it, it, it's difficult under crisis. So managers with experience is always nice. So experience and consistency quite quite key. Um, why do you think it's so important, or, or do you think it's important, to find out about the manager's process before you start looking at performance? Because I think a lot of people would think of performance before thinking of other things. Yeah, I mean, if you look at a standard 10, 15-year chart, you can find two or three UK managers both delivering substantial outperformance, but both doing it totally differently. Um, they may be multi-count managers, they may be value or growth. There's no necessarily right or wrong way. It's do their funds behave as you might expect when their style or or, or their process is is in favour with the markets? And if you understand how a manager should behave, and you know one of the questions you ask them is, what sort of markets should you do well in? What sort of markets might we expect you to underperform in? It's when they sort of you know break from that 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 you know you you want to understand why is it then become stock specific or something like that so it's kind of working out or judging them against what they set out to do rather than judging them against an objective number or whatever uh, absolutely okay um so with that in mind what are the main differences then in manager investment style yeah i mean there, there are lots of different investment style the sort of first thing that managers tend to describe themselves either as managers that put the macro conditions first or managers that just are stock pickers first. Um, it's just a different way of approaching your sort of your, your workflow. Um, the other then big different types of styles tend to be, are you a value manager or a growth manager or a um, growth at a reasonable price, a GARP manager, or uh, some managers use momentum as more focus in their process. Because we hear a lot about those. What, what are the kind of key differences, for example, between a value and a growth manager? So value managers are tend to broadly looking for cheap stocks. Now, that can be cheap because they're very out of favour, but they're still good businesses. Or it could be cheap because their share price has deteriorated by a certain amount. Growth managers tend to be looking for companies that are growing. And by that, that can often mean either growing in earnings, growing growth in profits, growth in share price or they are genuine growth structural growth businesses if you think about the transformation of apple in the sort of the 2000s it became a growth business because of its product with iphone ipads etc so you know there's no absolute definition of all of these things uh, it's just again a matter of trying to understand what it is that managers are trying to do and how they do that okay and so you were saying um that style can have a big influence on performance and whether a manager is outperforming, underperforming at any given time. Do you think, I mean, are there, are there examples of some managers who you think are great managers, but who have been underperforming the market due to their style bias? Yeah, I mean, post QE, 
um, we've had a sustained period of what you would either call, I suppose, you pigeonhole as quality growth. So if companies are growing in a low-growth world, which we have been post-financial crisis, they became very much the in-vogue stocks to have. So managers that were buy that like quality companies, i.e. companies with good um, good market share, high barriers to entry, they got very bid up. So it was more than the value managers really had difficulties. And you know, things like the, the, the value team at Schroeder's, who run the income fund and the recovery fund, they're very good managers at the MAN GLG undervalued assets, Investec special situations. They're all value first managers. And when in 2000, and they then did, you know, mostly have difficult periods in 2013, 14, 15, when that quality trade was totally in vogue. But then in 2016, when value returned to the predominant force in the market, all those managers were at the top of their, at the top of the performance tree, which is what we would have expected given we know they're value managers. So the fact that, that, that banks, uh, supermarkets, miners, those sorts of sectors, which are value sectors, outperformed last year, you would expect the managers that, that, that invest in that style to do well. And the ones that I've mentioned actually did. Tick box, thanks very much. <laughs> okay. And so you mentioned as well um, the difference in process in terms of some taking the macro or, I guess, uh, top-level sector views and some taking very much bottom-up view, as they like to say. How important is that when you're when you're judging a manager? Well, again, there's no right or wrong way. It's just, do you do it as you say you do it? And if, for instance, you read a, a note from a fund manager and they say, I think this is the year of banks, banks then outperform and they don't, I would want to ask questions. Okay, if yeah. you like banks because you think there's an interest rate cycle and that their returns on, on, on capital and returns on margin are going to improve from a bottom up and you're right and you still underperform, then, you know, then we ask questions. So you know, it, it, it is trying to understand how managers achieve their returns and you know, then if they have the right favourable conditions and the sort of themes that they favour are in place, then they should do well. If they don't, we want to know why. Okay. Now, what about the the houses that managers sit within, fund houses or companies? How much do these differ in terms of the, the resource they have around them, the teams that they have feeding into their ideas? Yeah, I mean, so there's super big, big, medium, boutique, tiny. Um, and that's generally from number of individuals or investment professionals. Um, I have met some firms with sort of two or three investors and 10 people who deliver very good returns. And, you know, we then have the sort of super group. We've seen the recent mergers of Henderson and Janus and more recently Aberdeen and Standard Life. These are now super-sized investors. We just try to find the pockets of excellence at all of these places. So there's no right or wrong. Um, Some processes do start with that macro-driven, in which case then you probably need a pretty good economist. Right. I mean, are there, are there areas where you do like to see a bigger resource, maybe, for example, in overseas equities? Would you like to see houses with banks of analysts overseas? Yeah, and again, there's no right or wrong way. I mean, we look at the likes of Fidelity or T. Rowe Price, where they have global analysts separated by both sector and geography, and they deliver pretty good returns. Um, we can also then look at the likes of, say, for instance, Matthews Asia that run Asian equities based in San Francisco. Now, they do travel widely, but you know they've chosen not to be in the location, apart from anything else, to separate themselves from the noise. Um, 
we can look at the likes of, for instance, the European and global income franchise at Lion Trust. They analyse accounts. They find very little value from going and kicking the tyres and looking at, fun, at company management and talking to their suppliers. Again, there is no right or wrong way. It's just understanding how they do it, why they believe in what they do, and then seeing if there's some proof in the pudding. Yeah, and I, I guess linked to that is, or certainly linked to kind of culture and ethos of, of different companies, it's just how much freedom a manager has to make decisions and how much discretion they have. Because this is can be quite different, can't it, from um, companies which have a set house view and, and ones where the manager acts very independently. Absolutely. And if you worked in an environment where you were fed by a bank of analysts and then you set up on your own, it, it would be at our judgment um, to want to see if you were able to bring that skill set across. And I'll give an example, uh, Jason Pidcock, who runs now the Jupiter Asian Income Fund, he did Asian income at, at Shell as part of their pension portfolio. And then he moved to, to, to Newton, launched the Asian Income Fund, but had this global bank of analysts supplying him with research and ideas. When he moved to Jupiter that doesn't don't have that set up, they do have lots of other investment professionals. We sort of gave it a 12-month cooling off period to see was he able to continue to generate that alpha and, and integrate with a different way of working, not necessarily better or worse, just different. He's gone on to do very well. We've reinstigated his ratings and that sort of thing. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's an interesting one as well, because I, when he moved, he did make that point, didn't he, about Jupiter being a place where managers have a lot of freedom. So that was obviously high on his agenda. Well, it, absolutely. And, you know, they have specific investment professionals. They have a direct India fund manager. They have global emerging markets managers. They have emerging Europe and EMEA managers. So they might not have direct bank of analysts that cover Korean autos, but they have a lot of other ex investment experience and they were able to, you know, work well together and, and deliver strong performance in his first year at Jupiter. Um, have, have you ever seen the opposite happen where a manager who you, who you have thought of as, as a good manager has left and in fact performance has gone off the boil? Well, I think this becomes much more or touchy-feely, more science, sorry, art rather than science. So if four or five people work on a strong UK team and one of them gets poached to go and work in another company, it's very difficult to know which part of that sort of four or five team were delivering the substantial alpha generation. And um, you know, we've already briefly touched on Neil Woodford, obviously, when he went off to his own franchise. Uh, the, the team that he left behind, in Mark Barnett, has done gone on to do very well as, as well. And there was another previous manager who used to run Invest Invesco UK Growth probably 10 or 15 years ago. He went on to do not so well when he wasn't sitting next to Neil Woodford. So it, it, there's no again set rule. It's a matter of sometimes it is a bit art over science and us having to form judgments about whether the, you know, the real skill set lies. Yeah. And so I guess we've been talking about how to um, choose a manager and what to look for. On the flip side, um, when you're invested with one, what are some warning signs that your manager might be going off the boil or, or starting to do less well? An obvious first signal is if funds get too big. Um, there is intense pressure on fund management companies, not necessarily the actual management themselves, to, to raise assets. Lots of these management companies are listed and you know, their share price you know, is based on inflows and outflows. But it comes back to that, why do we try to understand how managers deliver their returns? So, for instance, 
2016, which we've already touched on, which was a real value market, particularly in the UK throughout the year. If I know you to be a value manager and you didn't perform well last year, that's a bit of an alarm bell. So that's why you have to try and understand how managers get their returns. And it's a simple question. What sort of markets do you think you'll perform well in? What sort of markets do you expect to underperform in? And we record those and um, yeah. we ha- have, have them a record to, to, to check back in, 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 in future. Okay. And I mean, I guess that partly um, taps into what I'm about to ask, but how, how do you at Chelsea Financial Service, what's the starting point for you for finding a great manager? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're lucky enough to, um, to have a quantitative um, tool called AlphaQuest, which actually looks to measure alpha generation historically. It also looks at volatility of alpha. Um, that we do in partnership with our other business fund, Calibre. So that's a real nice starting point to so find managers that have done well in and so actual then we're looking alpha at generation. Well, it's alpha generation, which means it, restrict, it, it, it removes beta, which is market movement, and gives returns and consistency of returns. So our quant tends to favour lots of little returns positive rather than one big positive return and then some higher volatility of those returns but then primarily you know it is meeting fund managers um doing the due diligence asking them about what it is and how they do it um we tend to also like managers that outperform in down markets you know that old adage if you lose 50 percent you have to do more than 50 percent to get it back Mm. so if you can find managers that do well in in difficult markets and then keep up in broadly accelerating markets. That tends to give you better returns over time. Okay. And so when investors are um, assessing managers, what time period, what's the minimum time period do you think they should look at? So again, there's no right or wrong answer. Um, you know, If you can find managers that have could performed through different market cycles, so in an up and a down year, that could be over a two or three year period. Um, but you know, managers who've con- done consistently well over five and 10 years clearly is the output is more robust um, than managers who've maybe done well over one or two years. But from time to time, we do meet managers that are able to articulate their process and their investment style and that we will actually promote before they have a long-term track record. Okay, well, we're going to home in now on some specifics because we've had a look at TD Direct's list of the top 25 UK managers in the past 10 years. Um, And I guess what stands out is that, in fact, no one style or type of manager, as we've just been saying, outperforms. They are a varied group. Um, But among them are Mark Slater, who manages MFM Slater Growth, Nick Train of CF Linzel train UK equity and Alistair Mundy of Investec Special Situations. Um, so Darius, these are obviously good managers in terms of performance, in terms of returns. Um, do you rate them? And and if so, what do you think makes makes those three? The sort of stock or company that Nick Train likes, it couldn't be more different from the sort of stock that Alistair Mundy likes. Alistair's sort of first thing that Alistair looks for is companies that have fallen by 50%, their share price. Nick Train likes quality companies, companies that have high barriers to entry, good cash flow generation, brands, repeatable, lots of family money, companies that have been around for hundreds of years. Alistair just like companies have done badly mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and hence are cheap. And he then goes on to check their balance sheet and does due diligence as to see whether or not they're just out of favour. So Alistair is very much what I would call a value contrarian manager and Nick Train is, is much more in the quality type of stock. So they're very different and I would expect them to perform very differently in any one year. Over time, you know, their style should out and then their skill set at finding those best types of company to their own style 
should come to the fore. Okay, and um, also joined here by personal finance writer Emma Adjaman. Emma, you've been talking to one of the top managers in this list, haven't you, Anthony Cross. Can you tell us a bit about this fund and how it's performed? Yes, that's right. So the fund is Lion Trust Special Situations Fund. And as you mentioned, it's run by Anthony Cross and Julian Fosch. It's actually one of the top performing funds in the UK or company sector. Um, and it's actually one of our IC top 100 funds as well. The managers have maintained good performance this year. Um, they've generated a return of 24.8%. And that's beaten the FTSE All Share Index, which made 23.5%. And so what's been driving their performance recently? As Anthony Cross said to me, they've had a good Brexit so far in the sense that they tend to hold businesses in the areas that were least hit by the Brexit vote, the stock market volatility that we saw. So they will avoid areas um, such as house building, leisure and retail, which all did pretty poorly afterwards. And they also have lots of large global businesses with strong overseas earnings, which have benefited from um, when they're translated back into the weaker sterling that we've seen. So that's also helped them. Okay, now, um, they have a very specific kind of investment strategy, don't they? Or a very kind of rigid strategy, um, which, um, which they run with other managers at Lion Trust. So could you tell, tell us a bit about that? Yes, um, the strategy is called the Economic Advantage um, Strategy. And it basically consists of buying companies that have at least one of three key characteristics. Um, number one is intellectual property, such as patents, copyrights or trade secrets. Um, number two, strong distribution channels. And finally, um, a significant part of the business um, which has reoccurring revenue. So managers say that businesses with at least one, preferably even more, of these characteristics have strong pricing power and that makes them hard to copy and boost their growth over the long term. Okay, Darius, what do you think of that approach? Do you think that gives them an edge over other managers? Yeah, I mean, this is an absolutely fantastic fund with very consistent performance. It's outperformed in nine of the last 10 calendar years and only very marginally underperformed in 2013. It's a multi-cap fund, so it invests in mid and small size companies as well. Now, we know primarily because of currency that it was last year was very much a, a large cap year. But for the majority of the last decade, mid and small size companies have outperformed and a solid core UK equity manager like um, Line Trust Special Sits invests across the market and gives you a decent chance of winning in most years. Uh, Emma's highlighted their, their, their approach, the fact that they look for quality businesses with things that can't be replicated on the intellectual property side and or have you know, global distribution, businesses like Unilever. And, you know, they have these recurring revenues, which makes them attractive and should lead to share price appreciation. So, you know, that this is an absolutely fantastic fund, which is both elite rated by Fund Calibre and has sat on Chelsea's core buy list now for well in excess of five or six years. So, yeah, I mean, this is a standout UK fund. Mm. And so, Emma, just in terms of the kind of stocks it means that they have ended up with right now, mm. um, what kind of names, what kind of sectors would you expect to see in there? Well, they have many companies with strong brands, as we're saying, because these companies tend to have good pricing power. And Darius has actually mentioned one already, Unilever, um, which owns brands like Marmite, Dove, Lynx and Ben and & Jerry's. And they also have drinks giant Diageo, which owns brands, you know, sort of big brands such as Murnoff, Guinness, Guinness rather, and Johnny Walker. OK. Um, and they also seem to have quite a lot in cash right now, do they? 
They do. As of February, the fund had 9.5% in cash. Um, the managers say that this isn't because they're trying to protect on the downside, but it's a symptom of the fact that they have sold some stocks recently and they're still in the process of redeploying the funds. So, for example, they'd sold NCC Group because it had lost um, some large contracts and um, had a tough integration with another company. So they sold. that's one of the stocks they've sold as an example. OK. And um, Darius, obviously that, that key question of when you would expect a fund like this to outperform and underperform, when would you expect it to underperform? Well, so broadly, the things we've described, are, you know, the distribution, the intellectual property, it, it's a quality type of company. So you might expect in a very cyclical, heavily driven uh, momentum type of market, as we've seen in 2009, that they might underperform in that type of environment. But because of their multi-cap exposure and them not needing all three of their type of preferred things, that they can have a broad exposure. And uh, as I say, this fund has done has outperformed in nine out of the last 10 years, which is pretty spectacular. Uh, you know, they're experienced managers. They, you know, Anthony Cross has been on this fund for, for a very long time, has been through the up and the down cycles, and, you know, they will have held their nerve um, during those difficult periods. And, you know, whilst markets are very expensive, if they've made some sales, I don't mind them having a, a bit of cash waiting for the right stocks to come at the right price because even high-growth fund managers want to buy stocks at the right price. They may pay more multiples than value-type managers, but you know we make money by buying things that are going to go up, and um, they've got a great track record in doing that. Okay, so if I had to ask for your for two of your favourite other UK fund managers, who would you say? Well, I'll give you sort of one very experienced one, which is Nigel Thomas. He runs the Acts of Framlington UK Select Opportunities. Actually, unfortunately, Nigel had a difficult 2016 because of primarily because of Brexit, lots of the businesses that he likes actually have got a more domestic focus and they got very heavily sold off. So not big overseas earners. But, I mean, Nigel's run money for neon 30 years and has underperformed for about four or five of them. So, you know, very, very good long-term track record. And uh, Jail Hambro UK Dynamic is run by Alex Savides. That is a much more value-oriented fund. Um, he has sort of come from nowhere. He's running the best part of a, of, of a billion pounds now across segregated mandates and his fund. But, you know, that's a lesser well-known but still now very consistent. I think it's now outperformed for six of the seven years since launch. Might be five. But, you know, that sort of consistency is findable in these in, in, in fund managers. And, you know, that's one with a lot of experience and maybe one that people haven't heard so much of. OK, and just finally on this before we move on, when people are looking at funds... Uh, we've been talking a lot about managers, but just how important is cost? So cost is part of the total return. So if I go up 10% and I charge one, you get nine. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's that simple. But what we look for, particularly on our quant process, is actually measures that performance after fees. So whilst fees are absolutely important, they, they're a big part of total returns, if we're measuring the performance after fees, we can actually broadly start from a position that actually overlooks for fees and looks for good active managers. OK, well, thanks, Darius, and thanks, Emma. So we're coming to the end of the tax year and the start of a new one, and that means a new ISA allowance, and it means a brand new kind of ISA as well. The Lifetime ISA, or LISA, launches on the 6th of April, and it enables individuals between 18 and 40 to save up to 4000 a year, 
and receive a 25% government bonus on contributions. But the FCA has issued some new risk warnings about this. And we're here with a personal finance editor, Leonora Walters, to have a chat about that. So, Leonora, what are these new risk warnings and why have they been issued? Yes, the um, FCA has pointed out that um, if you invest in a leaser in preference to an employer scheme whereby the employer matches your contribution, you're going to lose that free money from your employer, which would be a bit of a shame because it's not often you get free things in life. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a good point because, you know, you'll save a lot more if everything you put in is being matched by someone else than, you know, if you just put your own money in. So I think the view is if you're lucky enough to work in a company that has a good employer scheme where your contributions are matched, that should be your priority over a leaser. And the, it's, the warning has come about, hasn't it, because this product is, I guess, um, halfway between a kind of pensions vehicle and um, a first-time buyer savings product. So it is quite similar, isn't it, to the help to buy ISA, which is already around. Um, How do the two compare in terms of what you can pay in every year and the potential bonuses? Yeah, well, the the LISA allows investors aged between 18 and 40 to save up to 4,000 each year and receive a 25% government bonus and contributions if they use it to buy a first home or if they don't touch it until age 60. And investors can put in £1,200 in the first month and then £400 in each month after that. Now, the help to buy ISA is also for buying a home and um, first-time buyers and savers can receive a 25% government bonus on their contributions. But with some differences, um, a, a leaser, you can put in stocks and shares or cash, but um, a help to buy ISA is only available as a cash ISA. And you can only put 3400 into a help to buy ISA in year one and 2400 each year afterwards. The bonus you can receive on a help to buy ISA is lower as well at £3,000 on total savings of 12000 compared to a potential bonus of up to £32,000 in Valiza, assuming you contribute the maximum amount between ages 18 and 50. Okay, and um, Help to Buy ISA is closing to new applicants sooner, isn't it? Yeah, but Help to Buy ISA actually shuts in uh, at 30th November 2019, whereas the um, Lisa, um, as far as we know, is uh, open-ended. Okay, um, so I mean, I guess it sounds potentially obvious, but which, um, which of the two appears to be the most appealing to first-time buyers, according to the people that we spoke to? Um, I think almost definitely the um, Lisa, and there's, there's a number of reasons here. Um, with um, the help to buy ISA, you can only use the bonus uh, to fund your house purchase. But the Lisa is obviously more flexible because um, you can, you know, grow the pot over time. You don't necessarily have to use it to uh, buy a home. You can can leave it till you till you're sixty and use it uh, for retirement. I think what's really important about the Lisa as well, and I touched on before, is the fact you can invest it in stocks and shares as well as cash. And that obviously is going to get you more growth and more return, especially if you leave it. Um, you know, as a, a sort of pension pot um, over several years till you're 60. The bonus, again, you don't have, in the Lisa, you don't have to use it to buy a house. Uh, you can, you know, you, you can just leave it there till you're 60. 
Um, and, and the problem with the help to buy ISA is um, when you um, get the bonus, that's only when your house purchase is complete, meaning you couldn't use it for a deposit, whereas the lease is a bit more flexible. So you could take out your savings and use that for the deposit, which is to be honest, a big stumbling block for many first-time buyers. Yeah, um, and we've had a reader um, write in, I assume quite a lot of people might be in this position, he's already got a Help to Buy ISA and he wanted to know whether he could fund both the Help to Buy ISA and ELISA in the same tax year as he has more than 4000 to put in. Is that a good idea? Should he do that or, or what? Well, the answer is yes, he can fund both a Help to Buy ISA and ELISA in the same tax year. But actually, he might be better advised to transfer his help to buy ISA into a LISA in the upcoming tax year. That's 2017 to 18. And the reason for this is just for this year, you can transfer any money paid into a help to buy ISA before the 6th of April 2017 into the LISA without affecting your ISA allowance for that tax year and earn a bonus on the full amount. So to illustrate this, you could potentially transfer 4,200 from a help to buy ISA or up to 4,200 from a help to buy ISA. That would be the total amount you could have saved since a help to buy ISA launched into the LISA um, and also pay in the full £4,000 LISA allowance. So that would result in a LISA pot of 8,200 for 2017-18, attracting a bonus at year end of £2,050. So you've essentially got a bumper allowance mm. for next tax year, so that's yeah. worth thinking about. Okay, so are there any instances where a help to buy ISA would be better than a LISA? Yeah, there is. There's one, and that's um, if you intend to buy a house in the next 12 months. Um, and the reason for this is you need the lease open for 12 months before you can use the bonus. Whereas a help to buy ISA, you just need to have saved in 1600 Okay, well, thanks, that, Leonora. And we've got um, a big table with a comparison of the two products and exactly how they stack up in this week's magazine and online. So that's all we've got time for this week. For more on everything we've talked about today, pick up the magazine. Otherwise, we'll be back next week and have a good weekend.